It's great to see you all here this morning. If someone asks you, where is your home, uh, how would you respond? I, I know if I get asked that question, I probably would still say, well, my home is Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, because that's where I grew up. Now, I haven't been back there for 40 years, so it's really not my home anymore. But when, when you have a place where you've grown up, it tends to take a special place into your heart. I know that we all just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? A lot of you went where for Thanksgiving? You say home, right? You go to your folks' house or whatever. You say, I'm going home uh, for Thanksgiving. Um, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having affection for an earthly home. Um, but here's what I want us to grapple with this morning. Uh, uh, the Bible wants us to reorient our viewpoint of home. So that our first response maybe isn't to think about an earthly home, but to think about our heavenly home. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says this to us. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you go over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer there lists a, a bunch of the great people of faith from, you know, Abel all the way to Abraham and beyond. And he notes there that these ones were so faithful that they stayed faithful even though they didn't receive the things that they were promised. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us why. They knew that their home address wasn't an earthly address. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, we're told they admitted they were foreigners and aliens and strangers on earth. In verse 16 of that same chapter, we're told they were longing, they were longing for their heavenly home, their heavenly country. I think God would have us begin to see ourselves, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, as aliens and strangers to this world, visitors here for a season. But this earth is not our home. We are destined for something greater. We are destined for heaven. Amen? You get what I'm saying this morning? Nothing wrong with an earthly home. But our perspective should be that we have a heavenly home. So our big thought this morning is this. This world is temporary. It's a temporary residence for God's people. All right? This world is a temporary residence uh, for God's people. So how does one think temporary, and how do we do this correctly? That's the question we're going to explore for a few moments uh, this Sunday on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, some insight to this question, to this inquiry, I think, is addressed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. Let me give you uh, some setup for the scripture I'm about to read. Jesus had revealed to his disciples, I'm about to be crucified. Peter had pulled him to the side and began to rebuke him. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but of men. And then Jesus went on to explain, this is the mind of God. This is how we ought to think as temporary people on this planet. Listen to what he says in verses um, 24 through 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he, she, must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good would it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. So, thinking temporary, thinking like a foreigner or a visitor, 
means you what? Deny yourself, right? Take up your cross, and you follow hard after Jesus. So that's our first point. If we want to be people who really begin to think correctly, if we want to have a heavenly perspective and think that we're temporary residents here, we have to deny, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Let me talk to you a bit on denying, first of all. If I'm thinking temporary, I'm not going to get all caught up in the affections of this world, am I? That's not what's going to drive me. I'm going to deny that. In fact, I'm going to say, that's not what I'm about. I'm not going to get caught up in all this stuff that doesn't matter. I'm going to deny that. I'm going to, I'm going to resist that. I may see people around me succeeding, having all kinds of worldly success and, and amassing all kinds of, of material possessions and making name for themselves or whatever be the case, I am going to deny that I need that. Why? Because this is not my place. This is not my home. Amen? You follow what I'm saying? I am heaven bound. I have a different destination in mind because I'm a citizen of, of heaven. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and my home is in heaven. It's not this earth. This earth is passing away. When I went to work for 3M in 1980, I went there as a project engineer, and I learned something really quickly. They like to move you every three years. They like to move you all over to give you a plethora of experience. And I found myself thinking short-term like I never thought short-term before in my life. Now, my wife had moved around a lot when she grew up, but I lived in one spot. So this moving around was a different way of doing life. And I began to experience the downside of thinking temporary. Well, we're only going to be here, you know, in this place for three years. So I'm not going to make any relationships. That's too much work. I'm just going to work and do stuff, and then we'll move to the next spot. Listen, that's not at all what I'm saying when I say to you that we need to think temporary. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. We can't think that we're going to live here in this place forever. Amen? But we ought to live hard where we find ourselves. We ought to be present in the moment that we're in. We ought not to be longing for something down the road to satisfy us, but we need to grab the moments that God's given us now and grab them hard. I have a saying anymore that I've kind of adopted. Live life with some urgency. You don't have all the tomorrows. You have the moment that God's given you right now and thinking temporary, I think like a visitor. How many of you like to travel? I, like, I really like to travel. And when I go to some place and I'm visiting, say, Zion National Park or Moab or going to the Rocky Mountains or something, I grab what I can grab when I'm there because I'm a visitor, right? I grab everything. So when I say thinking temporary here, it doesn't mean we don't do life. We do life hard, but we realize we're visitors. But isn't it a grand journey? Amen? You follow what I'm saying there? You're getting kind of where I'm coming from? Because denying doesn't mean I go, oh, I can't do anything fun. I can't enjoy this moment. No, it means that I understand how fleeting this life is. And that I'm grabbing hold of it hard, but I'm not setting my affections on this place because it is temporary and my home is in heaven. I deny 
doing that. Psalm 49, verses 10 through 13, talk about having this perspective. Listen to what it says. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. The tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and other followers who approve their sayings. So the psalmist is saying, listen, there's a propensity for people to think that you'll never die. They even name lands after themselves. But everybody perishes, he says. Now, and we're going to all die unless we, what, are around when Jesus returns. So why does this matter? Well, as a heaven-bound person, I live differently if I have that as my home perspective. Amen? I do life different. That's why this matters. Who's the main centerpiece of heaven? Listen, I never ask trick questions up here. It's Jesus, right? Isn't heaven about Jesus? And so what should we be about right now if we're heaven-minded people? Jesus. He should preoccupy us. He should be what we live for and how we do life. And, and he should be the main influence in what we do because, after all, that's going to be eternity for us, being in his presence. If you've given your life to Jesus, right? That's going to be the eternity that you experience. When Vicki and I moved to southern Iowa... We noticed that some people had a really Missouri Southern accent. Now, they thought I had an accent because I was from Minnesota. But I didn't think I had an accent being from Minnesota. Do you think I have one? But they pointed out that I would kind of roll my O's and say, they say, where are you from anyway? I said, Minnesota. And then they'd laugh. <laughs> you know, um, but I noticed that the receptionist at, at, at the plant she had a real Missouri drawl, drawl, all right? She would answer the phone, 3 a.m. I thought, you mean 3 a.m.? Are you saying 3 a.m. like the time, or are you saying 3 a.m. like the company? But she, 3 a.m., and every time I had, she would repeat it several times, so it wasn't just me. I think people were saying, did I get the right place? But th that, that, Growing up in Missouri, southern Iowa had influenced her, and it came out in a what? An accent, the way she spoke. Listen, listen. We should be so influenced by heaven that we have an accent, amen, that we just kind of default to speaking a little differently, thinking a little differently, because we're so influenced by our home, amen, that we begin to have the accent of Jesus just kind of bubbling through. We can't help it. Um, so denying yourself, what does it look like? Well, it means I'm not living for this world because this world is passing away. I have a heavenly perspective. Now, Jesus goes on and says, pick up your cross and then follow after me. I've shared this before at Grace Point. I'm going to share it again this morning really briefly. So if you've heard me before, bear with me. I'm getting old. I repeat myself. But I read an article a while back that talked about how people were reading scripture like this and reading other scripture in the Bible that says crucify yourself. Um, and they were actually physically doing that. They were wanting to have a deep spiritual experience. So 
they were tying themselves to a cross and they were driving nails through their hands. Now, they weren't really crucifying themselves like Jesus was crucified. There was these big honk of nails. They drove it through his wrist. It was pretty permanent. They, not wanting to be injured too bad, drove the nail through their hand instead making sure they missed vital parts. And I thought, well, if you're going to crucify yourself, man up and do it right. Don't do it at all, you know. That's a terrible joke. They didn't, they didn't know what to do first hour either. They just kind of, there was this moment of uneasiness, which we just experienced once again. But, but you know, they were, they were wanting to have the spiritual experience, so they were driving these nails to their hands. And I'm going, oh, such a misunderstanding of the Scripture. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That was his cross to bear. That's not yours and my cross to bear. He literally bore the cross for us. He literally went to the cross and he was crucified on our behalf and he took sin upon himself so that you and I can experience new life in him. We're not called to go to a cross. Literally, what he's saying to you and I when he says pick up your cross, that terminology means crucify yourself. Die to yourself. Die to your agenda. Die to, to, to what you think life is about and begin to pick up what I'm telling you life is about. And for each one of us, I think Jesus has a cross. And what I mean by that is he has a particular ministry, a particular burden for you to carry. Mine's not the same as Adam's or Chad's or, you know, uh, Keith or whoever. It's not the same. We have a different cross. I'm called to do what I do. I call the pastor. Not, not a lot of you are called to do that, right? Some of you are going, Hallelujah. But you follow what I'm saying? We each have different burdens. We're called to carry that burden and carry it for the glory of Jesus, dying to ourselves, living for him, picking up his agenda and how we do it. That's what it means to pick up your cross. It doesn't mean we go actually crucify ourselves. We don't need to do that. So if you're a business person, it means you approach business way differently. You've died to your own ego needs. You're not about making a name for yourself necessarily, you're about making a name for Jesus Christ and how you do that business. Because you've died to yourself, right? You're crucified. You no longer live. Christ lives in you. If you farm, whatever be the case, whatever you do for a business, you're doing it for the glory of God. You're picking up that burden. You're picking up that cross that Christ has given you, and you're living in such a way that it's distinctly heavenly focused. Because your home is where? Heaven, not on the earth. So whether you're an engineer or you're a teacher or whatever, you do it distinctly different. If you're a parent, you do it differently. Because you're crucified. You don't live. You've died. Now you have the opportunity to pour your life into a bunch of little buggers, your children. Right? And oftentimes it will feel like a burden, won't it? But you have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. You're picking up the cross he's given you. You're to raise these children for the glory of God, and you're pouring your life into them, amen? That's what this means. And you're following hard then after Jesus. So if we're going to live with a temporary mindset, if we're going to live in this world correctly then, it begins with denying, picking up a cross, and following hard after Jesus Christ. Here's an application for you to consider today. What cross are you to take up and follow Jesus in? What, what, where is he saying, hey, this is a cross that you're not seeing, but this is part of my calling on your life. Pick it up and follow hard after Jesus. Now, as the Lord goes on here in Matthew, he says, what good will it be for a man 
if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul. That scripture has been one of my main scriptures that I think about frequently in the Bible. What good will it be for me? You can put your own name in there. What good will it be for me if I gain the whole world by forfeit my soul? It's a lens. It's a filter that we ought to see life through. It focuses on, on this idea that we're going to heaven someday. We're not about staying in this world. So here's how I would put it into some more uh, maybe easily understandable terminology. Don't build your life on an escalator. Don't build your life on the escalator. Now, I know we don't have a lot of escalators in Brookings, South Dakota, but if you go to Sioux Falls and you go to Shields, they got a great escalator there by the Ferris wheel, right? It goes up and down. Now, I think escalators are fun. How about you? Do you ever just run down them backwards just a little bit? I do that just a little bit. Do you ever just kind of ride up on the handle? Sometimes I'll sneak a little bit of me on the handle if someone's not looking. It's kind of fun, isn't it? And I've always just wanted to run one, down one backwards. How about you? Wouldn't that be fun? Try it sometime. I don't think they'll kick you out of the store. They want your business. At any rate, escalators are fun, sort of, but they're not meant to be a permanent place, are they? It would be the height of folly to say, I'm going to build a house on an escalator. Really? How's that going to work out? That's not going to work out. But see, life that we're living is like living on an escalator. It takes us from one level to another. It is not the destination. It is not our permanent address. It's temporary. We're moving along to a different destination. We're in the world right now, but we are moving on this escalator towards what? Our home in heaven. And it's the height of folly that build our house on the escalator. I mean, think about it. What if someone saw you in the escalator and you're saying, I'm going to put all my resources into building the best house ever that you've ever seen on this escalator. All my time and my treasures and my talents, it's going to go into building this house on this escalator. We would just shake our head at you. Amen? We'd just shake our head at you. At least I would. A lot of people in South Dakota are very nice. They wouldn't shake their head at you. They ought to. So what I want to do is talk to you for a few moments on practical advice to demolish the escalator home. Years ago, I read this book entitled The Treasure Principle um, by Randy Elkhorn. I, I want to give him some credit. I'm getting a couple of these ideas from, from that book, but most of this is just taken straight from Scripture. Um, and so what I want to do is talk to you. How do we, how do we demolish that tendency to build uh, on the escalator, okay? Well, first of all, and this ought to resonate with you all right now, we, 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 we need to address the possession obsession that, that goes on in our culture so much and can invade into our lives where more is better. We just went through another Black Friday, amen? Amen? Did anybody participate in Black Friday here? I'm just curious. Did you get some good deals? Good for you. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But people tend to go crazy on these days. You think a TV really matters that much? I don't think so. I think it's a common mistake to think that more is better, that bigger is better. It's interesting to hear the perspective of some who had it all and what they've said. Listen to this list. Vanderbilt said, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anybody. See, the more you have, the more you have to take care of it, right? Astor said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Rockefeller said, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Ford said, I was happier when I was doing the mechanic's job. Sometimes we have a misconception that more is better. It's not. 
Our lives can become so cluttered, so busy with serving the clutter that we are forced to put all our energies into the escalator. And so I have a reflection thought for you to consider as I continue the message this morning. What does decluttering look like for you? What does decluttering look like for you as a person? I appreciated an approach that Vicki began to implement a few years back, and now she does it more regularly. It's about every three years she pretended we are moving, and she would just say, we don't need stuff, and we would declutter some. Now, she's in this service, so I have to be more gentle than I was first hour. I'm just joking. But she began to tell me that my closet was cluttered with a lot of clothes. Now it got personal. It's all about my clothes. I had a whole bunch of clothes that didn't fit me anymore, and they were old. I guess styles change after 30 years, amen? So I'm looking at all this, and I said, this is just like daunting. So we did it in a couple phases, and pretty soon I'm just, at the end, I'm just, nope, nope, nope. And I mean, it was like 40, 50, maybe more sets of clothing were gone. It's amazing that there's still a lot left in there. And, uh, but, you know, every now and then, we need to declutter our lives, declutter our closets. What does that look like for you? What needs to be decluttered in your life? Um, and, and you really need to get rid of Because here's the goal. Here's the goal. If we want to be people who are heavenly-minded and not living on an escalator, we have to rid ourselves of the tyranny of things, especially tyranny of the things of this world. We just have to rid ourselves sometimes. We just have to simplify I don't think I'm that uncommon. Now, I'm going to speak. Now, I know some, some of the women use this against their men first hour. Don't do that. I unintentionally gave you a lot of ammunition. This goes both ways. But let me talk to you about lawn mowing equipment for a moment. All right? <laughs> I'm using the personal example. Please, if your husband's worse than me, uh, you guys deal with that. But don't, don't tell me about it. Anyway, so I'm thinking about my lawn mowing equipment that I own now. I have a nice riding lawnmower. I praise God for that lawnmower. I like that lawnmower because it saves me a lot of time doing something I want to spend a lot of time doing. Amen? Right, guys? Amen? <laughs> right? Amen? I have two walk-behind mowers. Two. One works really well. One's broken. How many of you relate to that? But I'm going to fix it sometime at some point. So so in my garage. I have a weed whipper that I got really nice with an edger. I also have a second weed whipper that's broken. But I'm going to fix it at some point. I don't want to get rid of it, right? You figure, you hear what I'm saying? I know what the problem is. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Now, what will I ever do with two weed whippers? I don't know. But that's how men kind of think. I have a tree trimmer, even though I don't trim trees anymore, but once every few years. But you never know when you couldn't use a tree trimmer. I have a post hole digger. I finally used that. It sat in my garage for about a decade, but I did use it. I have a hedge trimmer. I have no hedges. <laughs> but I borrowed it out anyway to one of you, and I don't know who it is. So if you have my hedge trimmer, I'd like to get it back. <laughs> but there's no urgency because, like I said, I have no hedges. So if you keep it, I guess feel guilty, but go ahead. Um, <laughs> I have a chainsaw, too, that my son borrowed. I don't know if I'll get that back. It's been at his house now for over a year, so whatever. I don't have any trees to saw down anyway, so good for him. 
I have a lot of handy shovels, a bunch of rakes, a bosa, a wheelbarrow, a pull-behind sprayer, a handheld sprayer. You get the point, right? All this stuff is not necessarily bad. It's just clutter. And I use it all at some point. So I'm not saying you necessarily have to not have stuff like that. Here's what I think we need to do. Every now and then take inventory and declutter a little bit because our clutter begins to manage us. And this is what, what was being said in that Treasure Principle book by, by the author Elkhorn. He said, clutter can begin to manage you. You're not managing it. Declutter. Simplify your life every now and then. I'm not th- saying things are bad, but I think in frequent analysis of decluttering needs to take place. And it's not just material things. It can be how you use your time, how much recreation you do. Um, you know, some of your calendars, you need to declutter, amen? You need to simplify. You need to quit trying to do so many things. Uh, and quit, quit acting like this world is your home and, and, and get simplified and give some space for God to move I- in your life. Um, a word that I tend to use that just transcends everything is simplify, simplify, simplify. As much as possible, simplify your life. Give a lot of space for God to move. Give him an ear so you can hear from him. You know, take some of that noisiness away. Um, One of the most recent things that I think we're all dealing with is technology. Do you think technology can clutter your life? What do you think? Hmm, we're getting quieter now. I, I tell you what, I love technology, and I love some of the new things that you can do with technology. I like FaceTime. I like seeing my grandkids like that. That's cool, isn't it? But man, can technology clutter, can it? I remember years ago going to Epcot in uh, Disney World. Anybody, anybody been to Epcot down there? You know, yeah, great place, right? So you go in this big silver ball, dealy bobber, and you go on the animated ride up there. And I remember going up there, uh, this was a long time ago, they, they had all these futuristic you know, displays of what they thought would happen. And they're talking about all the technology that's going to happen, the robots and the computers, you know, Computers, and they're saying, and you're going to have all kinds of spare time. People are only going to work 15 hours a week. They said that at Disney World. I'm mad about that. (laughs) The opposite has taken place with the information age, hasn't it? We don't have any time. We're always busy. All this technology is managing us. We're not managing it. Declutter, friends. Doesn't have to be that way, right? I thought I'd get a name in, but whatever. All right. This last part of this demolishing the escalator, uh, home on the escalator, is don't chase the wind. Don't chase the wind. This is like chasing after some elusive idea that you'll never catch. Jesus said, what good will it be for you if you get the whole world but you forfeit your soul. Do you know that Solomon wrote a book about the futility of chasing after the wind? It's called Ecclesiastes, especially the first four chapters. He chased after everything under the sun, we're told. Now, when that phrase is used, under the sun, it means that Solomon pursued things of the world. It was a a secular kind of pursuit of happiness and fulfillment and peace, and it was Utter chasing after the wind, he says. It was meaningless. He said, I, I gave myself everything imaginable. Whatever my appetite wanted, I gave it to, to, gave into it. And he said, that was meaninglessness. It was chasing after the wind. Then he goes on and he said, I sought 
wisdom under the sun. It too, he said, was meaninglessness, chasing after the wind. And then he says, same thing with pleasures. I gave into every single pleasure imaginable. It too was meaninglessness, chasing after, after the wind. And he goes on, he says, even toil and hard work, if it's done under the sun, if it's done just for being the end in of itself, it's meaninglessness, chasing after the wind. And then he goes on, he says, even advancement, even doing well in life and advancing up the scale of whatever that means for you. He says, if it's done under the sun, if it's done for the here and now, it's meaninglessness. It's chasing after the wind. The book of Ecclesiastes is just fleshing out what Jesus says. What does it profit a person to gain a whole world but forfeit a soul? Read Ecclesiastes chapter 1 through 4 once with that perspective. You'll see what it looks like to do that and the fruitlessness of doing life that way. Listen, people of God, if you have Jesus in your heart, you are not messing out on anything. He has everything you need. All these things of the world that seem so alluring, Solomon concluded, they're not alluring at all. They're meaninglessness. They're chasing after the wind. So here's our conclusion today. A life lived for Jesus will be worth it. He will reward you. It's not like we're giving up anything when we follow Jesus, really, because where's our home? Where's our home, folk? It's heaven. This world's going to what? Pass away. You're all going to die someday unless Jesus returns first. Right? Amen? And you need to be preparing for your eternity, for your home in heaven. I can't even imagine this, but think with me on this for a moment. I think we're going to see Jesus face to face, you and I, if you love Jesus and you're giving your life to him, you're going to see him face to face. And everything we thought was such a big deal on this earth, it's going to go, boosh! It's just gone. We're not even going to care about it. Because we're going to see him in one glimpse of his glory and everything else will just vanish into nothingness. Amen? It really will. One glimpse of his glory unfiltered, I'm convinced, will burn all the nonsensical things from our beings that tethered us to this world that is passing away. I am reminded of the old hymn as I was concluding this message, it will be worth it all. I know when we see Christ, I know a lot of you don't know that hymn. I like it. It's one of my favorite. It's old. The refrain goes like this. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Anybody know this? All life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. We're going to sing it. As it, as it goes on, it says, One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Do you believe that? I believe that with all my heart. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Vicki yesterday got out some stuff and was showing me some, some letters that had been written to me when my mom was passing away. It was a hard time in my life, I'll admit that. I mean, I was really discouraged, and she was dealing with this brain cancer, uh, glioglastoma, it's nasty stuff. She was in uh, Minneapolis, and I was in Williston, North Dakota, and she was diagnosed in August, and she passed away in December. Really, really, really took her fast. And over that course of that fall, I went home to her uh, about 11 times, about once a week. Made that 10-hour trip one way to be with her. She was just really wanting me there, and she frequently, my mom was an old Norwegian gal, you know, not very demonstrative in her personality, 
as so many Scandinavians are, 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 are inclined to be. And she would just grab my hand. She was hurting so bad, you know, from the pain of it. And she'd, she'd say, pray for me. Just would you pray for me? I just want to eat something today. And my perspective on some things really changed during that moment in my life. And, and I became untethered from this world. It was like God was pulling up tent stakes in my own life to say, this isn't where you're going to end up. You're going to go the way your mom's going at some point too. And it was so hard to watch her go through that painful process of, of, of passing from this world to the next. And I remember frequently she'd say, why, why is this happening to me? I don't know. No idea. I'd hold her hand and I'd just pray for God's grace to be sufficient. At one point she said, you know, I don't talk much about my faith, but you know I've received Jesus. I said, I know now. You know, and I'm glad to hear that. It brings, you know, assurance to me. And she, she told me at one point, I really don't want to die. And I remember saying, I'm afraid, Mom, we just don't have a choice. Sometimes it just comes upon us as an unwelcome guest. And it's just what it is. I don't want you to die either. And I prayed with her. But during that whole process, guess what song came to my mind? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. That came to my mind over and over again. And I thought, oh, God, grace me to be a grace to her, but also grace me to let go of this world and live more for you. And you know, since that moment, each year I get more urgent in following Jesus and more urgent in living life because I realize it's very fleeting here. And we're visitors and it's a grand journey, but it is not our home, amen? Our home is in heaven.